from Wall Street to the White House. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. We're talking money and politics with Liz Peake and Steve Moore. By the way, um, Zelensky spoke to the senators. If you had started sanctions months ago, Liz, there would not have been war. Just laid it right out there. And you know what? He's right. He's right. Come on. He's right. And then and then Biden had the temerity to say the sanctions were were never meant to deter war. I mean, come on. It's just one of the stupid, stupid falsehood things that Biden has done. But here's what that's what Zelensky said. I mean, we all said it. They should have put the sanctions on months and months ago, as soon as the troops showed up on the east side of Ukraine. And they didn't. And then what's happened has happened. But he said that, quote, if you had started sanctions months ago, there would not have been war, he said. Well, and and Larry, here's what we absolutely know for a fact. Putting them on after the fact had no impact whatsoever. It did not deter uh, further invasions. It didn't mean that Putin sort of throttled his war machine and and goes slower. Uh, Would it have helped to do it beforehand? I think perhaps it would have. We don't know, but we know it sure as heck didn't make any difference after the fact. That's right. That's exactly right. Steve Moore, different subject. Um, Rick Scott versus Mitch McConnell. Rick Scott Mm. wants a positive agenda, 10, 11 points. Mitch McConnell doesn't want a positive agenda. There's kind of a warfare. It's very unseemly, but there you have it. Um, What do you make of that? Well, I think they're both right. I mean, obviously, um, this election should be the, as you just said, the energy election. So it should be all about the incredible mistakes that that Biden has made on every issue, whether it's the border, whether it's crime, whether it's the deficit, whether it's gas prices, whether it's our foreign policy. I mean, it's hard. I'm hard pressed to think even more than one or two things that Biden has done right. So it should. We do want this election to be a referendum on Biden and the Democrats. But I also think, uh, you know, that it makes sense for Republicans to have a positive agenda as well. So let's do both. Um, let's talk about making the. Uh, you know, Trump tax cuts permanent. Let's talk about school choice. I think the moment is so ripe for these kinds of issues. Let's talk about, you know, auditing every federal agency to find where the waste is in our government. Uh, let's talk about health savings accounts and health care transparency. Um, so can we do both? Yeah, we can do both. I just would like to see those guys agree yeah. that we can do both. <laughs> I, I mean, I like Kevin, both, you, know. you know, Kevin McCarthy was on the show uh, the day after the State of the Union the Republicans are preparing a positive agenda. Now, of course, everyone is attacking big government socialism. And of course, Biden tried to, you know, he did BBB in the State of the Union without calling it BBB, but he recommended all of his goofy social spending programs, and he has no plan for inflation. But Liz, I think you have to have a positive future agenda. So the cavalry's coming, the GOP should take both houses, and then the question is, what will they do? And I think at least in general terms, they should show the public what they'll do. I I think we do need a positive agenda. I was rather unhappy uh, after Biden made some speech recently, not the State of the Union, but before that. And he kept saying uh, his new mantra about how Republicans stand for nothing. What do they want? Remember, he Mm -hmm. was like, well, what are they after? And then Mitch McConnell was on Fox News the next day, and he couldn't articulate for things that we're for. I mean, I don't think it's very hard. We're, we're for safe streets and safety, and we're for a secure border, and we're stable prices, uh, and, and parents being involved in their kids' education. I mean, these are simple things, and I think 
Mitch McConnell is a very canny politician. He must think that the animus towards the Biden White House is so drastic right now, Republicans shouldn't muddy the waters. Just let the public have their say about how unhappy they are with the Biden White House. I think that must be his reckoning. But I think that's shallow. And I think, look, if COVID uh, over the next three or four months kind of disappears from our lives, that'll give Biden a boost. Uh, I don't know what else is going to get Biden a boost, come to think of it. But if he has any other wins, you know, you, you just can't really predict these things. And, and my point would be, this is not hard. This is not rocket science. We know what voters are concerned about. Let's have some answers, because right now the Biden administration has none. Yeah, I mean, Steve, you're right. They should have both. But they're not having both. They're, what they're having is a public dispute. And I don't, th- I don't think that's a good thing. There was interesting. They had a series of votes uh, in the last couple of days in the Senate that got completely overshadowed by obviously what's happened in Ukraine, where uh, one of my new favorite senators is Senator Marshall from yeah. uh, Kansas. I yeah. don't know if you had him. On I just he's had him on last night. This last love night. the guy. Love the guy. And he's he's forced these tough votes uh, on basically saying, like, let's let's lift all these mandates and let's lift all the, you know, the crazy mm-hmm. uh, requirements under under uh, covid because it's now in a retreat. And it was really I mean, it was a very strategic vote because virtually every Republican, I think every Republican voted to get rid of the mandates and virtually every Democrat voted to keep them. OK, mm-hmm. well, let's have a, you know, an, a, a referendum on these things. People are sick of it. They want to be freed up. I'm in I'm in Florida right now, Larry. And, you know, it is just it's a free state. You know, nobody's running around with masks on and, and people are getting on with their business. And it's that's the way it's been for the last year or so. Uh, so, um, yeah, those are the kinds of issues Republicans are on, a freedom agenda. Freedom. They, gotta, they don't want to be bossed around anymore by government. Well, but they got to get off, Liz. They got to get away from this China compete bill. I had oh. Phil Graham on earlier, sure. Senator Graham. I mean, really, we are going to out China, China. That's the yeah. way we're going to compete with them. I mean, they got to get off that. I agree with you. And it's not necessary that one of the versions of the bill, it, I'm not sure. Now they have two different bills and, and Biden appeared to kind of confuse them the other night, which is no surprise. But one of the bills, the America Competes Act, is the one that directs $52 billion towards improving semiconductor manufacturing mm. uh, here in the United States. What a completely idiotic thing. There are now probably $40 billion committed by Intel and other companies already building plants in the United States. I honestly cannot – For I read – most of the bill. I cannot for the life of me imagine why taxpayers should be funding. This is, I actually looked this up, the most profitable industry on yes. earth in terms yes. of profit margins. What, 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 what are they thinking? And to your point, that's what China does. China directs investment and spending. We should not be doing that. So the trade group is saying private investment in semiconductors, $200 billion has been committed. Yeah. As you as you say, Intel's put up forty billion or whatever. Two hundred billion. All right. So we don't need this bill. I mean it's a crazy idea. And um what was it? Eighteen Republicans voted for it or some such thing, Steve Moore. I mean, this is the GOP at its worst. It is. It's corporate welfare and it's government directed investment that doesn't work. I when I first came to Washington in the early eighties uh, do you remember there was a big debate, Larry, about national industrial policy? Yes. Oh, because sure. With Japan. Japan. With Japan. Yeah, Japan. 
the meaty, remember, the uh, whatever that yep. meant. Midi. Yeah, MIT. Uh, and everybody, oh, we've got to do what Japan does. And, of course, Reagan did just the opposite. We, we unleashed <laughs> the technology revolution through the free enterprise system and through lower taxes and less regulation. And we're, we're just pounding the rest of the world. And we, we are clearly the technological leader in the world. Right, and we kids. should be the energy leader in the world. Thanks so much. Liz Peake and Steve Moore. I'm Larry Kudlow. Thanks for listening. We will be back next weekend. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. We're talking money and politics with Liz Peek and Steve Moore. By the way, um, Zelensky spoke to the senators. If you had started sanctions months ago, Liz, there would not have been war. Woo. Just yeah, laid it right out there. That's and you tough. know what? He's right. He's right. Come yeah. on. He's right. And then, and then Biden had the temerity to say the sanctions were, ne- were never meant to deter war. I mean, come on. It's just one of the stupid, stupid falsehood things that Biden has done. But here's what that's what Zelensky said. I mean, we all said it. They should have put the sanctions on months and months ago, as soon as the troops showed up on the east side of Ukraine. And they didn't. And then what's happened has happened. But he said that, quote, if you had started sanctions months ago, there would not have been war, he said. Well, and, and Larry, here's what we absolutely know for a fact. Putting them on after the fact had no impact whatsoever. Correct. It did not deter uh, further invasions. It didn't mean that Putin sort of throttled his war machine and, and go slower. Uh, it, would it have helped to do it beforehand? I think perhaps it would have. We don't know, but we know it sure as heck didn't make any difference after the fact. That's right. That's exactly right. Steve Moore, different subject. Um, Rick Scott versus Mitch McConnell. Rick Scott mm. wants a positive agenda, 10, 11 points. Mitch McConnell doesn't want a positive agenda. There's kind of a warfare. It's very unseemly, but there you have it. Um, what do you make of that? Well, I think they're both right. I mean, obviously, um, this election should be, the, as you just said, the energy election. So it should be all about the incredible mistakes that, that Biden has made on every issue, whether it's the border, whether it's crime, whether it's the deficit, whether it's gas prices, whether it's our foreign policy. I mean, it's hard. I'm hard pressed to think even more than one or two things that Biden has done right. So it should. We do want this election to be a referendum on Biden and the Democrats. But I also think, uh, you know, that it makes sense for Republicans to have a positive agenda as well. So let's do both. Um, let's talk about making the. Uh, you know, Trump tax cuts permanent. Let's talk about school choice. I think the moment is so ripe for these kinds of issues. Let's talk about, you know, auditing every federal agency to find where the waste is in our government. Uh, let's talk about health savings accounts and health care transparency. Um, so can we do both? Yeah, we can do both. I just would like to see those guys agree yeah. that we can do both. <laughs> I, know. I mean, I like Kevin, both, you, know. you know, Kevin McCarthy was on the show uh, the day after the State of the Union the Republicans are preparing a positive agenda. Now, of course, everyone is attacking big government socialism. And of course, Biden tried to, you know, he did BBB in the State of the Union without calling it BBB, but he recommended all of his goofy social spending programs, and he has no plan for inflation. But Liz, I think you have to have a positive future agenda. So the cavalry's coming, 
The GOP should take both houses. And then the question is, what will they do? And I think, at least in general terms, they should show the public what they'll do. I I think we do need a positive agenda. I was rather unhappy uh, after Biden made some speech recently, not the State of the Union, but before that. And he kept saying uh, his new mantra about how Republicans stand for nothing. What do they want? Remember, he Mm -hmm. was like, well, what are they after? And then Mitch McConnell was on Fox News the next day, and he couldn't articulate for things that we're for. I mean, I don't think it's very hard. We're, we're for safe streets and safety, and we're for a secure border, and we're stable prices, uh, and, and parents being involved in their kids' education. I mean, these are simple things, and I think Mitch McConnell's a very canny politician. He must think that the animus towards the Biden White House is so drastic right now, Republicans shouldn't muddy the waters. Just let the public have their say about how unhappy they are with the Biden White House. I think that must be his reckoning. But I think that's shallow. And I think, look, if COVID uh, over the next three or four months kind of disappears from our lives, that'll give Biden a boost. Uh, I don't know what else is going to give Biden a boost, come to think of it. But if he has any other wins, you know, you you just can't really predict these things. And, And my point would be, this is not hard. This is not rocket science. We know what voters are concerned about. Let's have some answers, because right now the Biden administration has none. Yeah. I mean, Steve, you're right. They should have both. But they're not having both. They're, what they're having is a public dispute. And I don't th- I don't think that's a good thing. There is interesting. They had a series of votes uh, in the last couple of days in the Senate that got completely overshadowed by obviously what's happened in Ukraine, where uh, one of my new favorite senators is Senator Marshall from yeah. uh, Kansas. I don't yeah. know if you had him. On show. I just he's had him on last night. This last love night. Love the guy. Love the guy. And he's he's forced these tough votes uh, on basically saying, like, hey, let's let's lift all these mandates and let's lift all the, you know, the crazy mm-hmm. uh, requirements under under uh, COVID because it's now in a retreat. And it was a really I mean, it was a very strategic vote because virtually every Republican, I think every Republican voted to get rid of the mandates and virtually every Democrat voted to keep them. OK, mm-hmm. well, let's have a, you know, a, a referendum on these things. People are sick of it. They want to be freed up. I mean, I'm in Florida right now, Larry. And, you know, it's just it's a free state. You know, nobody's running around with masks on and, and people are getting on with their business. And it's that's the way it's been for the last year or so. Uh, so, um, yeah, those are the kinds of issues Republicans a freedom agenda. Freedom. They, they don't want to be bossed around anymore by government. Well, but they got to get off, Liz. They got to get away from this China compete bill. I oh. had Phil Graham on earlier, Senator Graham. I mean, really, we are going to out China, China. That's the yeah. way we're going to compete with them. I mean, they got to get off that. I agree with you. And it's not necessary that, that one of the versions of the bill, it, I'm not sure. Now they have two different bills and, and Biden appeared to kind of confuse them the other night, which is no surprise. But one of the bills, the America Competes Act, is the one that directs $52 billion towards improving semiconductor manufacturing mm-hmm. uh, here in the United States. What a completely idiotic thing. There are now probably $40 billion committed by Intel and other companies already building plants in the United States. I honestly cannot. For I read most of the bill. I cannot for the life of me imagine why taxpayers should be funding. This is – I actually looked this up – the most profitable industry on yes. earth in terms yes. of – Profit margins stuff. What 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 are they thinking? And to your point, that's what China does. China directs investment and spending. We should not be doing that. So the trade group is saying, private investment in semiconductors 
$200 billion has been committed. Yeah. As you, as you say, Intel's put up $40 billion or whatever. $200 billion, all right? So we don't need this bill. I mean, it's a crazy idea. And um, what was it? 18 Republicans voted for it or some such thing, Steve Moore. I mean, this is the GOP at its worst. It is. It's corporate welfare and it's government directed investment that doesn't work. I, when I first came to Washington in the early 80s, uh, do you remember there was a big debate, Larry, about national industrial policy? Yes. Oh, sure. With Japan. With Japan. Yeah, Japan. Is- the MIDI, remember, the uh, whatever that Yeah, MIDI, yeah. ITI. Uh, and every oh, we've got to do what Japan does. And, of course, Reagan did just the opposite. We, we unleashed <laughs> the technology revolution through the free enterprise system and through lower taxes and less regulation. And we're, we're just pounding the rest of the world. And we, we are clearly the technological leader in the world. All right, and we kids. should be the energy leader in the world. Thanks so much. Liz Peek and Steve Moore. I'm Larry Kudlow. Thanks for listening. We will be back next weekend. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. And we bring in a great friend, Ms. Kay Bailey Hutchison, former U.S. ambassador to NATO. That was during the Trump administration. And a former senator from the great state of Texas. Uh, Kay Bailey, thank you. Appreciate it. Larry, I am so happy to be on your radio show, and especially because this is something you have done for how many years? <laughs> a long time. Sorry, I mean, you, I mean, you've been talking about the radio, <laughs> which you never gave up through all of your different careers, and I know you must love it, so I'm thrilled to be on it. Well, it's good to have you, and we have a little bit of running room to talk. Um, it's much better than the TV I just want to I want to talk about NATO and Ukraine and so forth, but I want to just get your quick take. I find it impossible to believe or understand the logic. We're in the middle of this war in Iraq, in uh, Ukraine, uh, with Vladimir Putin on the other side. He's probably the most hated guy on the planet right now. And all of a sudden, out pops the news. It started two days ago. We covered it on our TV show. Um, we're very close, perhaps on the verge of a new... Uh, nuclear deal with Iran. Uh, I just don't understand this, Kay. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. What's your thinking? I am very concerned uh, that we would be doing anything uh, that would give money back to Iran with no verification to speak of And, of course, I haven't seen what would be in the agreement that was different, but um, we need to do everything to stop Iran from making a nuclear weapon, which they have said from the day that we left the treaty that they were going to start doing. And that was, what, two, three years ago or four years ago. And um, so they're very likely have a nuclear weapon or are close to a nuclear weapon and we can't afford another unreliable uh possibly uh unpredictable uh 
dictator with a nuclear weapon. And I, I don't know what's in the agreement. I have to say that up front. But, oh, my gosh, why are we even thinking that we would free Iran un- unless they have strong verification procedures, which might dismantle what they have already done? Which, you know, they don't. I mean, we never I have. Would, never. Uh, we have not had the, the verifications. Iran would never let the... Uh, the inspectors have access to where we asked that they do not. That was when we were in it, of course. And um, you know that the the uh, countries that are still in that agreement, which includes China, um, is not going to have any um, any even inclination to try to stop Iran, because I think. I think China and Russia have shown, and certainly Iran is a partner in this, that disruption is in their favor. Mm. I mean, to me, Senator, you this at any moment, I wouldn't trust Iran. I fully supported uh, President Trump's former President Trump's decision. Uh, you were in the administration when he pulled out of that thing. We put sanctions on them, damaged their economy. But at this particular moment, it's as though we're rewarding Vladimir Putin because he's the godfather of Iran and they are allies. And why would we want to help him right now, Senator? That's the part I don't understand the most. At this moment in time, how in the world could we give a reward to Putin in the form of helping Iran and, of course, you know, doing damage to Israel and the Abraham Accords? Well, yeah, that's a whole other factor. Uh, is the Abraham Accords have been working so well with opening uh, the Middle East to inclusion with Israel, and that has been working, and there has been trade now set up between and among the countries that were part of the Abraham Accords, and it's been a real boost for, um, for Israel, of course, but for uh, a stability in the Middle East in the beginning uh, for there to be trade and economic benefits. So that is another factor that makes this um, really uh, not understandable. I can't give you any kind of reason, but uh, I do what what comes back to me is that originally, Iran said they would not go to the table if there were going to be any changes. Well, the changes need to be verification and extension of stopping their ability to to do what's necessary to make the nuclear weapon because you know it runs out in twenty what twenty twenty four twenty twenty three. Uh, maybe it's 2024 or five, but it runs out in about three years. So um, we have to extend the uh, the bar for them to be able to make the nuclear weapon, but we also have to have verification procedures. So mm. when when we see what's in it, um, then you know we will know what we're facing. They're pretty close to a bomb. I mean, that's what the UN report says. They're very close to a bomb. Well, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, they've been able to work on it freely and openly. Mm. 
since we left the agreement. They've said, we are leaving the agreement. We, Iran, are leaving the agreement, and we're going to be able to do whatever we want to do, which is, of course, to go toward making the bomb, which certainly gives them leverage, and we don't need another uh, country with an erratic leader uh, with a nuclear bomb. We've got one of those. Well, we have two of those. We've got Kim Jong-un in North Korea. We have uh, now Putin showing that he has no responsibility whatsoever in saber-rattling with a, a nuclear bomb. And um, and then you've got the beginnings of China. And um, so, I, you know, why add one like Iran hmm. if if there are no verification procedures and no extension of this, uh, this ban. This would be a boon to Putin. This would be a big plus to Putin and his influence. And that's another part of this that I do not understand. Why at this well, moment in history would we want to help him in any way, shape, or form? Well, we shouldn't, of course, uh, want to help him. And disruption of any kind helps him. And I would hope that um, that the administration would be- begin to uh, to look at this in the timeline that you're talking about, and say, not now, not not ever will we um, do something that doesn't require verification, unless there can be an argument that that, that the agreement would be stronger, which Iran has said they would not do. Mm. Uh, then I, there's just no uh, justification for it. But, you know, you you hit on another point, and that is uh, why would we want to help Putin any, in any way? And I think energy has to be in this equation now. And banning the export from Russia of any energy, oil, natural gas, anything that uh, would give an income, a revenue boost to Putin, uh, should also be enacted by Congress and the administration signing. And um, we ought to be opening our own energy reserves, not our not our strategic reserve, but the reserves that we can get out of the ground right now. I don't want to deplete our, uh, our own uh, strategic reserves. We should be using what we have now and putting our people to work to uh, to create natural gas options for Europe. We should be sending ships filled with LNG right now to Europe so that they will not have to depend on Russia and ban all exports to any of our countries, partners, allies um, of natural gas we, and, and oil. We should be doing that, and most of certain, assuredly, it's should be the United States not taking Russian oil right now. Yeah, everybody, it seems like everybody agrees with, with what you just said. Everybody agrees with that sentiment except the White House. Uh, I cited a recent poll 80% of Americans want to stop Russian exports to the U.S. I mean, people understand that we're helping to finance Putin's war machine. Only the White House stubbornly, stubbornly. And of course, as you probably know, uh, they have. You know, the Interior Department and the Energy Department and FERC have basically stopped uh, all new projects, all new lease sale projects, whether it's offshore or onshore. 
They've gone a full year without approving a single new project. That has come home to haunt us now uh, as oil politics and oil economics are back on the front page with Ukraine. I want to go back to, um, we're talking with Kay Bailey Hutchinson, former U.S. ambassador to NATO and longtime senator from uh, Texas. Um, senator, here's, you want, you just wrote a piece saying that NATO countries led by the U.S. should immediately make available to Ukraine more help. Tell us about that. Uh, what else can we do to help the Ukraine, to help Zelensky? Well, I think Congress is going in the right direction right now. Uh, I hope they will do something. I, I heard a senator say recently in the next couple of weeks should be the next couple of hours. I mean, we should be uh, getting arms into uh, Ukraine right away. We should increase the amount. We should authorize the types of weapons uh, that can go to Ukraine, whatever they need, these these missiles that we've talked about, uh, air and land, but also anything that they need should be available to them uh, while it can get in. And so that's number one, of course. But also it's this energy issue. I think energy is the new security dynamic. And that is that we and, and I think that there is bipartisan support. I know that Manchin and Murkowski have mm. a bill that they are working on. I think something's going on in the House as well that that does that reverts uh, back to Congress the authority they have with FERC, for instance, to open the spigots, to open the natural gas, to open the uh, oil drilling in the Gulf of Mexico. You know, Larry. The, uh, they had a lease going, a, a lease uh, uh, competition going in the Gulf Coast. The leases were awarded, and then they were comp- they rejected mm. and dismissed the leases that they had just approved. I mean that is, I mm. mean that's even violating a contractual right. But um, but I think we need to. Uh, be able to drill on the public lands where there is availability, like in Alaska, for heaven's sakes. Uh, The Alaskans have voted time and again that they want to drill for oil. They want to produce oil, and it's it's jobs for them. They want to have that capability. And that would increase our independence that we did have uh, and now – with the new uh, rules, have lost that independence, which is why we're in importing from Russia. Now it's time to go back and make America secure and share with our allies so they do not have to depend on Russia, period. That's the next thing that we ought to do right away. And it looks like NATO is having a change of heart, you know, perhaps in, particularly in Germany, the policy of leaning toward Russia, Ostpolitik, now seems to be changing. Uh, the president, the chancellor of Germany, Olaf Scholz, it's a very interesting story. You may know it better than anybody, but he's now shifting. They're going to start up again uh, LNG terminals, LNG operations. Um, it looks like NATO's sort of gotten the message 
Senator Hutchinson, I mean, it looks like they're changing their tune now. You know, Larry, that's one of the stories that hasn't been covered very well yet. And you have put a pinpoint right on it. And it's Germany. I worked with the German ambassador at NATO who became a really good friend. And and I was always urging Germany to do more, to to be a leader in security as they are in economic uh, investment and success. They should be a leader. But he he and others uh, have said that Germany does not want to be a security leader, period. And they are still in the aftermath of World War II. Hmm. We need them to be now over that and be a participant and a leader in security. And it's very interesting because I applaud and respect the new Chancellor Scholz. He, it's like Nixon going to China. I mean, he is from the social democratic side. Um, Most people thought he would be a pacifist, which Mm. the social democrats have been. And yet he's the one that is stepping up, not only reversing the the former rule that they would not allow German um, equipment, armor, uh, the things that Germany does well to go into uh, Ukraine would not – they had a rule against – uh, allowing that. They've reversed that. Now the Netherlands is taking uh, arms that are German-made uh, mm. and sending them to Ukraine. And then to say we are going to do 2%, we just flat are. Mm. That's another major uh, step in the right direction. And then to open the LNG facilities. Yep. Uh, I applaud Germany. I think this is uh, it is of the stature uh, for Germany of Nixon going to China and saying mm. it's time that we start dealing with China. Uh, but Schultz is saying it's time for uh, for Germany to lead in security. And yes. that's a major step because NATO needs that. They need that German effort. And, and let me back up with one more point, and that Just is Germany has always been part of our NATO uh, missions. Everyone. They were a leader in Afghanistan. They wanted to stay in Afghanistan. They're a leader in the uh, enhanced forward presence in the Baltics. They are participants. They are pro-NATO. They've never veered from that. Now they are going to be a leader in security, and we need that leadership to go with American leadership to do the united front that we must have. Thank you, Senator Kay Bailey Hudson, former U.S. ambassador to NATO. We'll talk some more about this, Kay. Thanks for your participation today. We really appreciate it. Folks, we're going to take a quick break. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show, WABCRadio.com. We'll be right back. Larry Kudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Uh, welcome back, folks. I think we found a few more minutes for former Senator and NATO Ambassador Kay Bailey Hutchison. Um, Kay, you were talking about, look, there's a lot of bad things happening with Putin and Ukraine and so forth, and Lord knows where this is going to wind up. But perhaps one of the best positives here is um, the resurgence of NATO. You were talking about the key is Germany. 
Um, I, I think in general, NATO's amping up their spending now, and um, we will have a stronger defense, will mm -hmm. we not? At least they've learned. It may be a painful lesson, but we've learned a good lesson. You know, this has been the turning point, um, most certainly. This, it's interesting, Larry, from the U.S. standpoint, and I've worked with four presidents, I can tell you, the every one of them has said the same thing. Europe needs to do more. We need Europe to stand up and increase their defenses because that's how we will deter any kind of major uh, war or uh, confrontation. And, and we brought in, uh, after the strategic defense review, uh, China which was a total surprise to the Europeans that we would now be targeting China as a, uh, an adversary, potential adversary, uh, that we would begin to deter against. Well, of course, uh, now they are seeing that this is what we must do. And it's, a, it's belated, but it is a good sign mm. that Europe now sees that evil is still with us and we must be strong to deter against it. And I do think uh, that it is important that everyone knows, and because I keep hearing questions whether we really will uh, go to war if Latvia, Lithuania, or Estonia uh, are attacked. By, by Putin, well, that's, that's the current uh, risk. And the answer is yes. We have no choice. We have made a commitment. We have recommitted that Article 5 is inviolate. So our troops are going to be on the ground if they go into Latvia or Lithuania. And that's a commitment we've made, and America must keep its word. America must be a reliable ally. And that means we will be in this war. So uh, America is leading. We have always led. But now Europe has gotten the message. And we are – NATO is putting troops along the whole Ukrainian border with any NATO country. Now, this is including Romania. Uh, and it is going all the way around the Baltic and Poland, of course. Uh, and, oh, gosh, I have to say the Polish people, the Romanian people are doing so much to help these refugees that are fleeing mm. uh, this dreadful uh, Russian invasion. But now we are sending troops there to be ready to show the strength. Putin must get the message, Larry, that we are going to full out war and it will hurt Russia beyond anything they've ever seen. And I know that we will do that if they invade a NATO country, because mm -hmm. it is our commitment. And, and, of course, and just the, the, the very last point, uh, the NATO countries are amping up their spending. That's what it sounds like. That's what it reads. That... Absolutely. They are. And, and, you know, over 10 of them have already made the 2% commitment mm -hmm. and, and actually it's, achieved it and are buying the equipment, you, you know, it, you can't just spend 2% right now. You have to order an F-35. You have to order the tanks You have and, and the ships. And that takes uh, several years to build up. 
but they're doing it now and they're building toward it and they're putting their budgets on the line uh, to ramp up. And, you know, you bring up another point, ships in the Black Sea. That's one of the things that Putin is uh, doing right now in the southern part of Ukraine. Well, in the southern part of Ukraine. We've got to leave it there. Kay Bailey Hudson, former senator of Texas, former U.S. ambassador to NATO. Kay Bailey Hudson, thank you ever so much, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. On the other side of the break, we're going to talk to another former Texas senator, Phil Graham, about what it's going to take to make economies great again. America's economy is great again. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. You can live stream us, by the way. WABCradio.com on the internet. You can hear us across the country, around the world, throughout the solar system. And we bring back an old friend, talk about the economy, Senator Phil Graham, former senator from Texas for many years, a mentor for all of us free market kids down through the years. Senator Graham, welcome back, sir. Larry, thank you. Thank you. What a nice compliment. Oh, no, you have... You have your followers are everywhere. So your great article in the Wall Street Journal, Peace Through Strength Requires Economic Freedom. You know, in this uh, whole Putin-Ukraine story, there's an economic freedom issue, and that is the Biden White House waging war against America's fossil fuel industries, best in the world, cleanest in the world, cheapest in the world, we could be supplying the world. We were until they uh, came into power a little more than a year ago. No, You probably saw the journal's editorial, no onshore leases, no offshore leases in the first year. That's never happened, at least for a long time. I mean, we, we should have the freedom to, freedom to produce energy, should we not? Well, look, uh, we have, in essence, created this Russian menace by stifling our own production of oil and gas Mm -hmm. uh, and allowing them to gain market power. And uh, in this period of conflict, uh, we have hampered our ability to step in and sell oil and gas uh, and in the process alleviate a crisis in Europe and drive down market prices, which takes money out of uh, Putin's pockets. Uh, And therefore, uh, if we uh, ramp back up uh, fracking and and general production of oil and gas, we could effectively begin to dramatically reduce his finances. Yes, sir. I've made that argument. I made it, made it, made it. And the White House, I mean, actually, Congress is looking better on this now. They're starting to fight back, maybe stop the Russian exports of oil. Uh, And, of course, some senators, still Republican senators, no Democrats except for Joe Manchin. But, um, I mean, we've got to produce more oil and gas. We're capable of doing it. As you say, we we would... stop Putin's war machine. We would stop his financing. But I think, I think, Senator, it also would help the rest of our economy. How can we have a strong market-driven economy without power? And there's not enough power that's ever going to come from uh, so-called renewables. I mean, it's a, 
It's a, a crazy notion that we're going to end fossil fuels in 10 years or some such. We're never going to be able to do that. Well, look, we're certainly fossil fuels are going to be around long time. Uh, now, whether or not we're going to deny ourselves the efficiency and economy they produce uh, is one question, but whether the world is going to use fossil fuels is another. But you got to understand, we're dealing with people in this White House who are far more, uh, 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 this White House is far more dominated by zealots than the Obama White House was. And uh, these ideas of efficiency and competitiveness are sort of overwhelmed in their mind by what their political agenda is. Mm. Uh, you look at the inflation problem we have, where we doubled government spending over a 12-month period, uh, could there be any doubt as to what the effect of that was going to be on prices? No. Why did they do it? Because it was their opportunity to do it, and they were going to do it no matter what the costs were. It's sort of like you remember when Obama was asked the question, would you raise the capital gains tax even if you knew it would reduce federal revenues? And he <laughs> said, yes. Yes, I do. And, uh, <laughs> you know, he was a Boy Scout compared <laughs> to the people who are dominating this White House. He was a Boy I Scout. I mean, they are zealots yes, they uh, are. that are capable of sort of uh, – uh, basically blocking out all other interests except their political agenda. It's a very frightening thing to me. I'm uh, sure you're very different from Clinton, for example. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I'm sure you saw in the State of the Union that President Biden was back. He didn't mention the phrase build back better, but his social spending agenda was right there. There he goes again. Yeah, I, I love the part where... He talks about how they've cut, uh, reduced the deficit by a trillion dollars. <laughs> he didn't talk about how the deficit was increased by two trillion before it was reduced by a trillion. And he didn't talk about it's only been reduced because his program wasn't passed. But then I tell you one thing, Larry, that is just frightening to me and amazing is in my whole political career, I don't ever remember, I'm sure I said many things that were wrong, but I never intentionally said anything that I knew was not factual. And you look at that State of the Union address, and there's no way that you could fail to know that a huge percentage of things in it were just not factual. For example, the Trump tax cuts made the tax system more progressive, not less progressive. Uh, the Congressional Budget Office scored it as being more progressive. Um, and, uh, you know, there were a thousand, not a thousand, but there were many other examples of where what the president said made no sense. How can you increase spending uh, by $1.9 trillion and reduce inflation? Uh, and most of the money going to pay people not to work, which is the source 
of our supply chain problems. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, I, I think the uh, overstimulus of demand and incentives not to work are the, those are the two basic and the, the inflationary byproduct of that. But I think, you know, the supply chain, we've, <laughs> we've just fl- flooded the system with so much money uh, through deficit spending and the Fed is financing the deficit spending so that we couldn't possibly produce as much. Now, we need to have all kinds of supply-side reforms. I want to get into that in a minute. But the fact is, uh, coming out of the pandemic and the shutdowns and so forth, we just um, we just overloaded the system. The system couldn't produce enough. And the policies well, made it they made production even more difficult. Yeah, look, there's no way when you double government spending and increase aggregate demand by 20% that any economy can increase production by right. 20%. Right. It's not possible. So a lot of what is being called supply chain problems is actually a problem generated by excess demand. Mm-hmm. We're importing more than we imported. The ports are bringing in more goods than they brought in. Industrial production is up above the pre-pandemic level. Why do we still have uh, supply chain problems? Basically because we have got excess demand. We had supply chain problems in the 70s and early 80s, too. We didn't call it that. We called it inflation. But it was a more honest era than <laughs> the era we're in now. <laughs> so um, America's, America's success in the world economy has never depended on industrial policy or government subsidies. you write, And yet both Republicans and Democrats are pushing this uh, incredible so-called China compete bill uh, Two hundred fifty billion out of the Senate, then they tacked on another hundred billion in the House, and we're trying to out China China, and this cannot be exactly. a good thing. That's this cannot be good. The article that, <laughs> this cannot, you this know, cannot be good. It's the very moment that China is crippling their economy, driving up unemployment, and destroying their tech industry. It the the equity value of their tech industry has fallen by fifty percent in the last four years. At the very moment, expanded government policy is doing that in China. So what do we want to do in America? Well, the same thing. Uh, it absolutely makes no sense. You know, example I use in there, we've been given subsidies a long time. And, uh, you know, you look at what they produced, and they've not produced much <laughs> uh, except wasted money. Uh, and the subsidies they give in China, what have they produced? Wasted money. You know, their estimates now, they're talking about 5% growth. It seems like it's only a few years ago, every year China was producing 12% growth or 15% growth. And that hasn't gotten much attention. But the latest central planning statement, they're all the way back to 5% growth because she has moved away from free markets. Exactly. And just remember, I I never understood the Chinese economy, really, until I took my nine-year-old granddaughter to China. 
and we climbed the Great Wall in the mountains. We went down the Lee River on a raft. And you get out in China and you see all these buildings that were built. You see all these apartments that are half finished. And you realize that even a lot of that 5% growth is not real. Mm. That a mm. lot of it went to build things that aren't valuable. Remember GDP, uh, since they don't have to sell these things, they just build them in China, that that's how much they produce, but it doesn't say much about how valuable they were, except for those that ended up being sold on the market. So uh, uh, there's no question about the fact that, there's, uh, that China has crippled its economy with expanded government, and at some point, it's going to affect um, the power of the Communist Party because you've got a lot of people in China that have been educated in the West. The party's control is based on providing prosperity, and when they don't provide it, um, they're going to have very, very real problems. And mm -hmm. if they keep expanding government, they're not going to provide it. Uh, they I, had growth because they opened up their economy. I agree with you. The greatest economic liberator in the post-war world was Deng Xiaoping. That's right. Now, I mean, it's a pity that the recent uh, presidents, including Xi, have moved away from the Deng Xiaoping reforms, and that's getting the outcomes that you're talking about. They're, exactly. They're, the value added is down and the growth is down. Uh, you know who agrees with that, Phil? It's um, Henry Kissinger. I, yeah. I remember when I first got into Trump administration, I went up. Henry the K lives about an hour north of us here in Connecticut. And I went up on a Saturday and spent five hours with him, one long afternoon, lunch right on. And we talked about this because we were negotiating the China trade deal and I was on the trade team. But he said they're going in the wrong direction. State power is rising. Freedoms are being repressed, and it's going to have adverse effect on their economy. And sure enough, that's what's happening. We don't want to emulate that. That's why this bill well, look, is so bad. From Marx's own, socialists have taken the view that economic growth is just automatic, and you can do the things they want to do, and it won't have any effect at all. But it never works because growth is not automatic. Growth occurs because you do productive things, because you unleash human energy, because when you set people free, they become creative. And when you start limiting people's freedom, creativity starts to decline, productivity starts to decline, and growth starts to wither away. And uh, it's happening in China. And look, it happened to a much lesser extent than in China, but it happened during the Obama administration. In 2009, everybody said the economy was going to take off, and it didn't take off because it was smothered to death in the crib by massive regulation. And Biden is doing exactly the same thing. Uh, only his regulators are outwardly 
uh, leftists. Hmm. Um, the the most extreme people that have ever been appointed. I I don't quite understand how it happened. Um, Douglas Holtz Eakins Group, he's a smart fellow, have estimated, Senator, that uh, in the first year, the Biden group has uh, imposed $205 billion worth of new regulations. $205 billion. Now, that is a lot. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me at all. The uh, Just in executive orders in the first 30 days, uh, he uh, stopped pipelines. Um, he stopped leasing on federal lands. Mm. He um, changed the – he basically eliminated cost-benefit analysis and regulation. Mm. Uh, and he started appointing people that that are – openly hostile to the very uh, industries they're going to regulate. Mm. Can I get you, I just have a minute left. Um, uh, Rick Scott, Senator Rick Scott's trying to get a, a growth agenda. A lot of the stuff is, is from your playbook. Um, I don't know for what reason Mitch McConnell's gone after him. What do you think about this? I mean, you know, what he wants to pause spending. He wants to make the tax cuts permanent. He, he wants to have work fair, work requirements. And then he said that people that don't have work requirements should pay some taxes. You got a quick thought? I, I guess I've run out of time. It's 30 seconds. Well, look, I started worrying on the Reagan tax cut, which I was very actively involved in and supported that we were taking people off the tax rolls and what kind of country we were going to have when you ended up with one group of people that benefit from government and the other group that pay for it. Mm. Uh, it it's an inherent danger. Um, but if you run out of time, I better not launch in. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've, we've done about 20 minutes. <laughs> so Senator Phil Graham, great state of Texas. You're the best, Phil. Don't know what we do without you. Thanks very much for helping us again. Folks, we're going to take a quick break. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Please hang around. We're going to talk some more about this. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. You know, I just want to put a cap on the last points we were talking about with Senator Phil Graham. Uh, this argument, and there'll be we'll be covering this because there's going to be a lot more in the weeks and months ahead as we move toward the midterm elections. But you have Senator Rick Scott trying. Uh, he's the head of the Republican Senate Campaign Committee. He's a very astute politician, former businessman, smart guy, free market guy, I might add. And he's trying to put forward a positive growth agenda for the GOP in the Senate races. We have uh, Kevin McCarthy in the House, the Republican leader in the House, is well along in that. Uh, McCarthy was on our show uh, on Cudlow earlier this past week, uh, I guess the day after the State of the Union. Uh, Mitch McConnell, on the other hand, and I'm, I'm not jihad Mitch McConnell. I like Mitch McConnell. He's an old friend, um, as is his wife, Elaine Chow. But Mitch doesn't, doesn't seem to want to have a positive agenda to run on. Now, 
you, you've got to go after all of Biden's big government socialism. There's no question about that. And that has to be the full thrust, including, of course, the inflation issue, which is a, a political killer and an economic killer. But Rick Scott has come out with, I don't know, a 10 or 11 point plan, which I've reviewed briefly. I don't know every detail, but it looks quite sensible to me. Um, I saw Newt Gingrich came, wrote a piece endorsing the thrust of it. Uh, I've been texting with Senator Scott, I guess, yesterday. Uh, you don't have to believe everything or agree with everything he says. But the, the fundamental points he were making was to you know, make the Trump tax cuts permanent, keep taxes down, um, stop the regulatory state that we were just talking about with Phil Graham, um, stop the government spending and the deficit finance, which is causing the inflation, but um, and stop the overregulation. But one of Scott's points is we've got to have workfare. We've got to have work requirements. You cannot have welfare without workfare, as Phil Graham has said. And Phil's been a leader on this, and so has Joe Manchin. And um, and I've talked about it a lot. Uh, safety net is fine, but you have to have work requirements. Now, if you are getting welfare money, then you have no skin in the game. And what Rick Scott is saying is those people that are getting welfare without working should have to pay some nominal amount of taxes so they have a skin in the game. They're part of the game. And I, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's a good thing. So we'll talk more about this over time. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to have Dan Clifton. He's a policy, fabulous Washington policy analyst coming up on the other side of the break. I'm Kudlow. Please stick around with us. Much more to do today. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. Great pleasure to be with you, as always. Join us during the week, by the way. Fox Business. Fox Business News. FBN, the name of the show is Kudlow. And it runs from 4 to 5 p.m. every day, Monday through Friday. So have a look-see. Anyway, we're going to bring back a great friend. And really, I think Wall Street's number one policy analyst as far as Washington goes. Nobody does the work that Dan Clifton does. He's a partner and head of policy research at Strategus Research Partners. Uh, my great pal, Jason Trennert. Uh, so, Dan, thanks for coming back on. Larry, um, it's great to be here. Thanks for I'm, having me today. I, I'm reading, I mean, your reports have been become voluminous, but then again, there's a voluminous amount of stuff going yeah, on. Yeah, there is. Yep. <laughs> so, look, at. let me just... Um, <laughs> Before I dig in on some of the sanctions and so forth, yep. this um, debate or argument or whatever between Rick Scott and Mitch McConnell. Yeah. Uh, now, Scott's got uh, a 10-point plan or 11-point plan. Uh, I don't know the details. I have read uh, a couple things. I read his op-ed piece in the journal. You probably yep. did, too. I did. Yep. Um, I mean, I think the guy's on the right track. And... Um, I don't know why Mitch McConnell's so opposed. I mean, look, they're gonna, the cavalry's coming in November. Republicans are going to do very, very well, I think. Uh, but, it, you know, and going after Biden's big government socialism, of course, that's what we have to do because it's crazy. But, 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 Dan, it's good to have some positive ideas. Absolutely. 
so. about growth, prosperity, jobs, security, and yeah. so forth and so on. What's wrong with what Rick Scott's doing? Yeah, you know, my my mother used to say it's not what you say, it's how you say it. So it's more about process rather than the ideas itself. And we can get right. into the details of that. But I think you're absolutely correct. We're looking at, a, at not a wave, a tsunami election in November. Could be as many as 40, 50 House seats, probably four or five Senate seats. And so the Republicans are going to walk away with an election if the trajectory remains the same as it is today with – sort of a mandate to govern. And there's going to be a lot of division between the parties about what that means. Does that mean that there's got to be Hunter Biden investigations and NIH, what happened with Dr. Fauci? You're probably going to see some of that. But you also need a pro-growth agenda that is then says, this is what we got elected on. And I think to the Republicans' credit, they're trying to figure out what that is. It may not have been totally formulated or consensus amongst the group, but I think it's a positive development that we're talking about what the ideas should be. Larry, just let me make one caveat to that. All of this is nice, but it really doesn't matter because this is going to be the energy election. Yeah. And if the Democrats do not get religion here on energy policy, they're going to get wiped out even more, and that's going to be the basis of the Republican policies once they come in. Then we can continue to do 100 percent expensing, something that you've championed for a long time, as part of that, because we want more investment. We could start talking about lower government spending. I'm so encouraged by labor force participation in the jobs numbers yesterday. Mm -hmm. As soon as we got rid of those transfer payments, uh, labor force participation keeps right. going up. Right. Those are the policies that I think will be important. So there's a debate about what the policy should be. That's healthy. Mm -hmm. I think by the time we get to November, we'll be moving in the same direction here, and it will be driven by energy policy. You're right. You're right. You're right. Energy policies. Uh, and I think, Dan... There's a common sense to this that has eluded the Biden White House. I mean, yep. this jihad against fossil fuels, uh, no new leases onshore or offshore. Yep. Everybody's attacking them at the very moment when gas. I mean, I don't know how high gasoline prices are going to go, but they're pretty high already. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's I, I think common sense. Ordinary folks don't understand why we can't have uh, oil and gas. I mean, the country is not falling apart. We're not choking to death. It's like a made-up story, this climate risk, existential climate, all that nonsense. And I think the Democrats are going to get clobbered on that, Absolutely. not because we're all climate scientists, but because people are pragmatic. And they just they scratch their head and they go, huh? We're going to batteries are fine, Dan, but if you can't mine them, we need the we need the lithium. We need the nickel and all that stuff, yep. which, yep. by the way, is carbon intensive. And it's people are going to scratch their head and they're going to say the Democrats. I don't get it. Absolutely. I don't understand where you're taking us. Larry, let me give you one leading uh, example of this. Last year, it was about schools, particularly in the Virginia election. Uh, yes. As soon as ideology took over and kids stopped getting educated, the parents revolted. Mm. Now that's happening on energy policy, and it's been brewing for some time. The cost of living has been a driver in our polling data since June of last year. It's the first time in my lifetime where 
uh, in politics where inflation is greater than unemployment because we have a 3.8% unemployment rate and a 7% inflation rate. And where that's felt most is at the gas pump. Just as voters said, we just want our kids to get educated and we're going to throw people out if you're going to get ideological about it. They're now doing that on climate change. You want to get ideological about climate change? We're going to throw you out, and we are going to put somebody in there who's going to get our cost of living down. Look at what's happening in Germany. This is such a seismic event. Germany is saying, well, you know, that climate change stuff we were worried about in 2035, we're not so worried about that anymore because we're watching our borders get encroached on, and we're dependent on Russian energy, so we're going to – delay the cancellation of our nukes. We're going to continue on coal. It's practical uh, policy, and it's not being opposed by the Greens. So now you bring that over here into the United States, and you say, what does that mean? Well, that means that we're going to have more LNG. That means we're going to be doing more exporting. Those are the issues that are going to take over here until somebody gets this right and gets those gasoline prices down. So I tend to think the ideological push will eventually have to go away because it's unsustainable the same way we're seeing the COVID and the education policies begin to shift because they fail to educate our kids. You know, Dan, it's interesting point. Very good point. The German greens are now opening up their minds to let's say LNG. All right. And so the socialist party, uh, uh, Schultz, now, he's changed on a couple things, which is very interesting because of Russia, Putin and Ukraine. But 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 they're going to go now and develop LNG terminals. Remember, yep. they started to build one. Merkel started. And then the moment Trump lost, she she killed it. Yep. But now they're more reasonable. They're saying that uh, natural gas may be a renewable. They're willing to accept natural gas. Exactly right. That's a big thing. Their, exactly. their greens are smarter than our greens. Exactly. <laughs> but eventually we'll get there. I want you to think about the absurdity of what we're doing in this country right now. We would rather have Iranian oil than, yeah. than Canadian yeah. oil. We yeah. would rather release oil out of our strategic petroleum reserve, the emergency reserve, than go do offshore and regular drilling here in the United States. It's absurd what mm. we are doing. It's also unsustainable And so it's okay to be worried about climate change and the effects that that's going to have if that's something that people believe when you are not in geopolitical events. But the geopolitical world has changed. Mm. Borders are changing. Invasions are happening. And now you have to focus on what's important. And that's what Germany's doing. Eventually, the United States is going to do it. But the events of the last couple of weeks has basically confirmed what President Trump was telling Europe, you need 2% of your budget for defense purposes, as NATO requires. You need to be importing more LNG uh, from the United States and getting off your dependency of Russia. And they browbeated the president for that. Mm. And they have learned the hard way and the way that you don't want to learn, but they are learning. And that's why I think energy security is now national security. And this is a big, big change that's happened over the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I love that. I love the energy election theme, Dan. I love that. I'm going to pick up on that. I'm going to carry that ball. It's a great, you're absolutely right. And the pragmatists will defeat the ideologues. Exactly. You know, because Americans are, they're really pragmatists, aren't they? They're common sense people. 
That's right. I mean, that's going to be a big thing. Let's shift over. Talk to me. Uh, I have your latest piece, which yep. is awfully good. Uh, yep. Tremendous detail here. Um, one thing that interests me is that a lot of American businesses, a lot of American companies are self-sanctioning. Exactly. You know, and even, I mean, look, they, we have got to stop the Russian uh, exports yep. of oil. I mean, I mean, there's, and I think it's going to get through the Congress, but I've noticed uh, companies are just taking actions on their own, yep. not you know, not to buy and sell Russian oil, not to finance Russian oil. I've never really seen anything quite like that before. I, I have never either, and this is what we call soft sanctions. So, you know, we spent a lot of time in November, December, January trying to develop a sanctions list. We had a good playbook from President Trump on China, things that we did with Iran last decade. So we thought, you know, we had a good idea of what the range of outcomes were. Uh, I do have to give some credit to the United States and its global partners for really ramping these up and making them as painful as possible. Mm -hmm. And so you're going to generally collapse the Russian economy, make this as painful for Putin as possible. It's not going to stop them, but there's going to be economic sanctions. What I've been most surprised about is by the public companies that are doing these soft sanctions and saying, well, we're not going to do business there anymore. My, my colleague, Courtney Rosenberger, who just is the best at identifying this relationship between stocks and Washington, she has, uh, I mean, it's a full list of companies, full page of companies that are doing this. And they're also underperforming the S&P 500. So the way I would best explain this is that companies are putting aside their own profit interest to actually cut Russia off. Russia is going to be extremely isolated. And what I would argue is that after decades of integrating into the global economy, within weeks, Russia is now isolated out of there. And it will be a very long time before they come back. The question is, how sustainable will this be for businesses to remain there? Right now, it's like the cool thing to divest and do this. But my, my sense is that, you know, you'll start to see less and less of this over time. It's the, just the cool thing now not to be doing this. But there's a real risk here. And so we look at what's happening on the short-term basis right now. But we also have to think about the long-term consequences of what we are doing. And, and so it might feel good right now on some of this. But when the next event happens which may not be as severe as what's going on, there will be a call for companies to divest from another country, even if it, you know, if it meets some society goals. So we gotta be very careful here on the divestment side and what that test is for divestment. I would also say that the US put sanctions on the Russian Central Bank. They froze the Russian yeah. Central Bank assets. We estimate about half of those assets are actually in G7 countries. Mm -hmm. That makes it harder for Russia to be able to uh, evade the existing sanctions. But if you're a central bank around the world right now, you're looking at this saying, hmm, maybe I shouldn't be in all king dollars. And in the short run, you know, that's where you want to be. But in the long run, there may be a diversification because we went nuclear here and basically put this dollar sanctioning in place. And you've got to be very careful doing that with the reserve currency. And I'll be the first one to admit that there is no alternative right now, but you probably see cryptocurrencies and other alternatives begin to emerge and probably more Russians having bank accounts in China because you got to treat capital well outside the national security realm. Now we've integrated with national security and we're setting some precedent. So we've got to be very careful mixing those short-term sanctions with long-run incentives to remain the dollar 
and the U.S. the place where you want to put your capital. But, but it is interesting. The dollar, the DXY dollar is held up very Absolutely. well. It's actually and, increased. And also, and, and Bitcoin has not rallied. Yep. I mean, it, hasn't, it hasn't collapsed either. It's just, you know, it had gotten, it was in a correction mode. Uh, I don't know where yep. it is, 40,000 something or other. But I haven't seen any big changes in those market prices. No, I, yeah, I, I mean, there's been some bounces. You might want to look at Ethereum. So there, there may be a couple of them. We're starting what's to look a, at what's it. What's Ethereum I, I doing? To, I can continue to try and think about the long run, like energy security being national security. That's a long-run consequence of this. Germany really kind of using natural gas as part of their renewable strategy, long-term consequence. Those are going to be game changers. We just need to be careful because we are the reserve currency – and we want to be able to use this in as delicate of a manner as we can while still achieving our policy goals. You know, I think um, another risk here is this Ukraine story is going to go on for a while. Yes. In other words, what, and, and my crystal ball is not any good, and I'm not a military strategist or analyst, but I, from what I read and, and what General Keene tells me in this um, – so Russia's going to take Ukraine, yep. unfortunately. They'll wear them down next few weeks. Uh, you know, sorry, but and Zelensky is a hero, but God knows what's going to happen to him. But yep. the point is, if they do, and if they put their own puppet in yep. to Kiev, there's going to be continuous uh, warfare, Dan, in the streets, in the cities, block by block. In other words... Russia's going to have a hard time occupying Ukraine. Absolutely. And so I'm just thinking that all these self-sanctions, whether they're hard sanctions or soft sanctions, this is going to be a longer-term term story. And I think the Russian economic isolation is going to continue. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's going to be devastating for them. Yeah, I, I do too. This, is, know, um... this is not a couple of weeks, Dan. This is going to go on for a long time. This is it, right? Like, this could all end today, but getting those sanctions off are probably going to be very, very long time alone. Okay. Number two is that um, the consensus did not believe Putin would go into Ukraine for the reason that they believe that it's easy to take Ukraine, but it's really hard to hold Ukraine. The U.S. learned some of that mm -hmm. in the Middle East over the last mm -hmm. couple of decades. Okay. I always thought he was going to go in, even with that risk. And if I could just make this prediction today, I think we're going to move away from the puppet government idea to him just getting rid of statehood altogether for Ukraine, where it just becomes part of Russia. Because that's what I believe his ultimate goal is. He's been saying that Ukraine is not going to be a country. Okay, so if that's the case, that means he wants to be part of Russia. So I think you'll start to see that shift. But the resistance in the Ukraine right, will right. be so strong that right. it's actually going to be more controversial for them. So what I've been arguing to my clients is, is that if you have this outcome where this is long-lasting, oil prices will still remain elevated. And not just oil, commodity prices. You're cutting Ukraine off from the sea where they export out their, their agriculture products, which are pretty plentiful, right? So you have all these issues out there. This is why energy policy is so important. If it is going to be cut off over there, then it needs to be increased over here. That's the way that I would think about it. But look at what's going on in Germany. The market is clearly pricing in a recession that's going to happen in Europe. 
the U.S. yield curve is flattening very quickly, getting very close to an inversion. You know that that's always a danger sign, that there's a policy mistake. And, and, and gasoline prices and oil prices have been the most significant factor in creating recessions here in the United States. Now, I'm not saying we're going to have a recession, but why would we even play with this? Where's the urgency to make sure that this does not happen? Because you are 100 percent right, Larry. This is not going away in a couple of weeks. That means those commodity prices are going to remain elevated. We want to be able to deal with that from a risk management perspective to ensure consumers are not paying six, seven dollars gallon gasoline. And, and that's what I would like to see from our policymakers. That's what I'll be addressing with my clients on Monday in our note that, that we'll be sending out. Now, we could we could adopt policies that reduce taxes, yes. reduce regulations. Yes and promote oil and gas to fight this recession. We could, all right? So that's got to be a part of the story for this election. I mean, it it gives Republicans a tremendous opening. It plays plays to their breadbasket. Absolutely. Uh, They got to take advantage of that. But Larry, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, two weeks ago. Oh, I know. I know. I know. Energy infrastructure and LNG exports. Yes. That's what we need in this country. Right? So we're going in the opposite direction. And if I would put one person on the radar screen for people to watch, it's Senator Manchin from West Virginia. Mm. Boy, was he fired up in the Senate Energy Committee hearing this week to mm. go after them. So if there's going to be somebody who can pull Democrats over so that the country policy can become more practical than ideological, it's going to be him. But they were really upset when he put out his counter-proposal to Build Back Better this week mm-hmm. and, and basically said we need fossil fuels in here, <laughs> like heads were exploding. So, you know, the Democrats are still in this kind of ideological sense, that's and what, that's why it starts to become an election issue. If you're going to resist, what, then it's going to be used against you in the election, and I do think that voters are going to be quite practical about it. I had him as a guest Wednesday. That's what he said. Yeah. He absolutely said that. And uh, there isn't going to be any build back better. This is not going to happen. Right. And he said to me, well, he said something like, Larry, I can't change. <laughs> something like that. That's all he said. All right, Dan Clifton, you are the best of the best, folks. He is a partner and head of policy research at Strategus Research Partners. Dan Clifton, thanks, buddy. Talk soon. Folks, we're going to take a quick break. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. Larry Kudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. So, just to. Dan Clifton had a very good, pithy analysis of the energy election. I really like that, the energy election. That's probably what this is going to boil down to, isn't it? Because, I mean,. Taxes are not, and they're just not going to be as sexy. Regulation's not as sexy. All the COVID stuff and the mandates have gone by the wayside, finally. But the energy story is going to be the story. And I think that's a very, very important insight uh, on Dan Clifton's uh, part. And energy prices are going to still, they're going to be high because of the Biden ideological ideological intransigence in blocking um, virtually all production and, of course, uh, 
leasing sales for for new operations, whether it's a pipeline or an LNG terminal uh, or just drilling. Um, you have this group of regulatory agencies that they're using as their weapons, the Bidens are, including FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, and the Interior Department and the Energy Department. And you also have these um, financial agencies, the SEC, uh, the Federal Reserve Board. So this is going to keep prices high. It's going to keep volumes lower than they should be, the supply of oil and natural gas. And this is going to be a big election issue. Gasoline prices may be the tip of the spear. So we'll talk some more about this over time. We're going to do some stock market work and look at the jobs report on the other side of the break. Please stick around. I'm Larry Kudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. Larry Kudlow here. By the way, um, this is sort of breaking news. If you want to hit us on the Internet, live stream us. You can go to LarryCudlowShow.com, LarryCudlowShow.com. How about that? Live stream us all across the country and around the world and the solar system so you won't miss a thing. Now we're going to do some economic and stock market work. And we have Stephanie Link, Chief Investment Strategist, Hightower Advisors, Head of Investment Solutions, and Nancy Tengler. CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Laffer Tangler Investments, which has a five-star Morningstar rating, which is very cool. Nancy Tangler, five stars, huh? That's pretty cool. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, me like too. Yeah, I'll bet you do. And uh, the great Stephanie Link, my old pal. So, kids, it's interesting to me. There's a lot to cover today, but the stock market's gone down, I, I think, Four weeks in a row, it's gone down. But it's not crashed. In fact, nothing's really crashed. We've seen some retreat in interest rates. I guess treasuries are a safe haven. The dollar exchange rate, the DXY, has held up, actually strengthened, in fairness. Um, gold has been strong. Gold's up to 1970, uh, 1970. And also interesting to me, at least, the five-year tips break-evens are at 326. Uh, those are up a lot this week, 16 basis points. But, Stephanie, let me start with you. You know, given all the issues and problems in Ukraine and energy uh, and high prices and gasoline and whatever, um, the market has done okay. And, in fact... Yesterday's jobs numbers suggest once again that the economy is still hanging on. So what do you make of all that? <laughs> it's great to be here, and it's good to be on with Nancy as well. I think what you're seeing this year so far is multiple contractions because of all the uncertainties uh, that you started to highlight. We have, obviously, the unknowns on Russia. We have real inflation anywhere you look. Look at those unit labor costs, the core PCE, and even yesterday's non-farm payroll, the wage number at 5.1% year over year. I know it came down and it was less than expected. That was a total mixed situation uh, where you had more leisure and hospitality jobs and less technology and utilities, so you had to mix shift. But there's still inflation there, no, no question about it. And, and quite frankly, it's all of these things, in addition to the Fed, even though we know they're going to go 25 in two weeks, 
we don't know if they're going to be able to engineer a soft landing. So all of these things are leading to multiple contraction. Multiples have gone from 21.4 times for the S&P at the beginning of the year to about 18.8 times. Hmm. Uh, that's not terrible. But guess what? It's still above average. 18.8 is the, the average is about 16.17. So uh, we could go lower because of the uncertainties. But to your point, the economy is, is very strong uh, across the board. The data has been very uh, encouraging. And guess what? Equity inflows year to date are $86 billion. So hmm. you had flows in February alone at $63 billion. So money is still pouring in because what? there's no place else to go. But here's the interesting thing. At the top of the list, it's commodities and gold inflows. So that's very, very telling. And you're seeing outflows in technology. So there's, there's a lot going on underneath the surface, Larry, for sure. Yeah, commodities, um, Nancy Tangler, oil and commodities, aren't those prices going to stay high and probably keep going up? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the most interesting commodities is coal. Uh, if you look at the contracts, that's 175% year to date. Um, it, you know, it's just ironic in, in so many ways. But, um, yeah, we've been we've been investing in commodities really with a, a focus on um, the metals and miners that would support green energy. But we hedged it all with oil because, as you know, Larry, I drive an F-150. So <laughs> it just seemed, seemed like the right thing to do. Uh, but we started that a year ago, and, and it was really driven by copper and, you know, the usages and the EVs. And, and I think, I mean, I just caution people not necessarily chase the trade. But, yeah, we think, we think you're going to continue to see strength in many of those commodities. I mean, wheat contracts are up 56 percent. Uh, if you look at um, copper, it's up 10. Uh, but, but Brent is up, you know, 52. So I, I think you have to be in that trade. Uh, and so we, we've put our clients in that in a separate strategy. But I, I agree with Stephanie, and Stephanie, it's good to be with you as well. Uh, I, I agree that multiples have contracted, certainly. Earnings, the earnings season was spectacular. Um, it's a backward-looking metric, but of course, we received guidance from management, and dividend growth has been extraordinarily robust. We've, we've seen companies announcing, you know, 40, 50, 100 percent increases, as well as the more mundane 8 to 10, 11. But that's still excellent. And, uh, you know, a lot in between. And it's not just the energy companies. I mean, UPS raised their dividend by 49 percent target, got approval next quarter to, to raise 20 to 30 percent. Uh, Kohl's just announced 100%, Steel Dynamics 30%. So these are it's a broad spectrum of companies, and managements don't raise their dividends um, without considering future earnings and the sustainability of it. So we think that below the surface, that's very positive, um, and we've been adding to uh, segments of, of the market during this time just because we're getting the opportunity to upgrade the underlying quality of our portfolio. Do these, um, Stephanie, do these... Commodity producers pay good dividends. I mean, Nancy just mentioned uh, steel, and I think you mentioned. Did you mention coal, Nancy? Uh, well, I just mentioned the contracts. Yeah, but but do they, they do, do they, and I'll let Stephanie opine. Well, yeah, Steph, do they, do they pay dividends? Do oil companies pay good dividends, or commodity producers in general pay good dividends? Well, they're starting. Too, right. I mean, that's the whole reason why uh, energy prices have actually they before the Ukraine and Russia issues, they were on the rise because of the whole ESG clean energy movement and from shareholders pressuring these uh, the energy complex across the board not to 
produce more, but to actually share, uh, re- use that free cash flow to return to shareholders. So mm. you ask dividends, Chevron, 3.5% yield. But by the way, two years ago, I'm sure Nancy was buying this as, long, as well as I was. I bought this two years ago when it was yielding 9%. It is now <laughs> Chevron at 3.5%. Exxon is at 4.2%. This is a dividend yield. Conical Phillips, 2.1%. EOG, that's an E&P company, that's 3.5. So they mm. are starting. One company that I happen to own is uh, Diamondback Energy, and uh, it's astounding how much they are returning to, share, to, to shareholders, yeah. and, and, uh, and, that's what, and they're committed to doing it. And I will predict that they will offer a special dividend because they have so much free cash flow. And to Nancy's point on earnings, she's spot on that earnings that were excellent last quarter and they're go and estimates are going higher, only about two to four percent, but they're still going higher. And that's encouraging. But the absolute theme in earnings in the last six, uh, let's say six months, two quarters or so, it's free cash flow. Companies are generating an enormous amount of free cash flow. And not only are they buying back stock and increasing dividends, but you're also starting to see a CapEx cycle, which we haven't seen in quite some time. Yeah. Well, that was my, but aren't, they're afraid to produce. Yeah. Because of these regulatory policies. So they're, Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not, I don't have a view on it. They're doing what they have to do because they're businesses and they have to uh, play to their shareholders. But uh, we should be producing much, given these cash flows you're describing, uh, they should be plowing it into production and investment for future production. And it doesn't sound like they are. It sounds like they'd rather just return the cash to their shareholders. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying it is a fact of life right now. The ideological biases of the administration and its regulators are saying, you know, don't make big commitments. In fact, they won't even let them make big commitments. They won't mm-hmm. let them have onshore leases. They won't let them have offshore leases. We're buying mm-hmm. we're buying Russian oil. Uh, God knows uh, we, we may be buying Iranian oil. I mean, I think it's the dumbest thing in the world, but that's the way these guys are going. I mean, it's very strange, very very yeah. strange, and it's not the most efficient thing either. It's not great for economic growth overall. No, no, definitely not. And I would say that, you know, I, I worry about, look, I mean, you're at, uh, you're at WTI at 115 in terms of crude prices. And there are some projections out there that are crazy town, like 150 to 200. If we put more sanctions uh, on Russia, we'll have to wait and see. I, I'm not calling for that at all. But even 115, look, that consumers are feeling it, right? Mm. And and across the spectrum. And, and, con- and the consumer, Larry, you know this, it's 70% of the U.S. economy, right? And so we can't have the consumer roll over. We're not seeing any signs of it yet, but we got to watch it because it's not just at the gas pump, right? It's across the board, uh, and, uh, and, and it is something definitely to watch. And fortunately, some of the companies that I've talked to, they're able to increase price. Well, if you increase price, eventually demand gets you know, there's some could get um, destroyed and we're not seeing it yet, but it is certainly something. If you, if you ask me something that I worry about, that's what I worry about. Well, Nancy, mm-hmm. were you surprised 678,000 jobs plus 92,000 upward revision from the prior two months. So it's 770,000 jobs. Um, the economy, the basic economy is still pretty strong, even with the seven and a half percent and rising inflation rate we're still hanging in there pretty well 
Yeah, I mean, I I think you know, I'm a I'm a I'm, I've studied at the uh, feet of the master incentive uh, economist Arthur Laffer, and you know, when we took away uh, or when the the government stopped subsidizing people to not work, and and mind you, you know, in the summer we we were talking about it on your show um, that the Fed was 100% laser beam focused on employment all the while the federal government was paying people to stay home. And right. so once once that was removed, I think we started to see improvements, people returning. One of the most interesting stats for me on the on the job numbers was that you saw in the participation rate one and a half percent increase in high school education. And a, a lot of those people were beneficiaries of um, subsidy payments. So I think that's very positive. Um, getting people back to work is a much more effective way to improve their disposable income on a sustainable basis and, and keep consumer spending um, going. But I think, interestingly, um, that you know the yield curve is, is Steph's worried about um, oil, as am I. I'm also worried about the um, dangerously flat yield curve. Uh, I, I take comfort in the fact that we had a yield curve 40 to 70 basis points between the twos and tens in the 1990s, and stocks returned, um, you know, about 70% during that two-year period. But this is this is what I'm watching, and it's hard to decipher because there's also a flight to quality going on. So it's hard to to take a lot of information from the yield curve. But we are watching that. I'll add one last statement about credit market. You know, pension plans um, it, it authorized allocate the highest allocations. Um, to credit than they than they've ever done in a one month period. It was uh, 17 point 173 billion. Sorry, over the last uh, 12 months, and then 19.7 in February. Well, that that goes into uh, corporate America, and this is one of the the themes that we think is very positive for the market. Once companies they issue bonds so they can buy back their shares as well as capex, and the tech capex cycle is is very exciting. But then they use the cash to to buy back shares and or increase their dividends. And that's been putting a floor under the market, uh, I think, over mm-hmm. the last couple of years. And so we think that's going to you know, kick back in uh, once we get through Fed, Fed Day on March 16th. Well, let's take a quick break here. Let's take a quick break. I want to come back and talk about the Fed. We're going to have a, a rip-snorting, roaring regime change, quarter-point increase in the Fed's target rate. With a seven and a half percent inflation rate, I don't know. Stephanie Link, chief investment strategist, Hightower and Advisors, and head of investment solutions, and Nancy Tengler's the CEO and chief investment officer of Laffer Tengler Investments. I'm Cudlow. We'll be right back after this short break. Please stay with us. This is the Larry Cudlow Show. Now back to the Larry Cudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. By the way, LarryKudlowShow.com on the Internet. You can live stream us everywhere on the planet. We're talking to Stephanie Link, Chief Investment Strategist, Hightower Advisors, Head of Investment Solutions, and Nancy Tengler is the CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Laffer Tengler Investments. Um, ladies, Stephanie, start with you. Fed's going to raise the target rate by one quarter of a percentage point. The CPI is 7.5% rising. The PPI is uh, 10% year-on-year. Import prices are 11%. So they're going to take it up a quarter of a percentage point, and it's putting me to sleep. I'm snoring. It's just, it's just, 
I mean, really? A quarter of a point? How tough is that? I mean, that's really tough. The ghost of Paul Volcker is hanging nowhere over this. What's going to happen here with the Fed? And what does it mean? Does it mean anything? And how does it affect this? You're flattening yield curve stuff. Both of you talked about that. It's a very good point. I mean, I think, let me just throw more on the on the table. So recessions are always preceded by big oil shocks, oil price shocks, and inverted curves. So we're kind of creeping toward both, even though you don't see it in the economy. And the Fed is going to do a quarter point, which I would guess has no impact on anything. But what do you think? Steph, start with you. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think they're way behind the curve. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, you had uh, what they look at uh, most importantly, and you know this, Larry, and so does Nancy, core PCE. That's what they look at. Like That's the mm. most important piece to that. And that's 5.2% year over year. They are looking for a target of two. So you're at 52 So we are way behind the curve, and they have to do uh, a lot of – they have to do a lot of tightening, I think. Now, what I think, 25, I think it, they would have – they could have gone 50. I was never thinking that in the first meeting, but they could have gone 50, but then we had Russia. And so um, I think he's pragmatic. He's trying to say, hey, I don't want to spook everybody, and uh, we know we have to do this. But we have a big looming concern out there that we weren't expecting kind of thing. And that's, the again, the geopolitical issues. So I think um, they're going to absolutely do four times this year. That just gets you back to normal policy, though, right? That, we're in emergency policy mode right now. So if they raise it four times, uh, that is getting back to normal. And then I think they're going to be data dependent. And you and I have talked about this. That's my theme for 2022. I think we're all going to be just data dependent. We're going to look at all the data and see what happens. And then they'll act. Um, the bond market's pricing six rate hikes that, that we know. Um, I would argue we can handle six. I don't think it's going to do anything for inflation, quite frankly. That's number one. And number two, I don't even think it's going to slow us down all that much. I think there's a lot of momentum in the economy. And, and a lot of good things are happening um, at various different companies and industries. They have streamlined for the last two years. They had no choice. Um, they have put in price increases to offset commodities. They're seeing real demand growth right now. So we are going to slow down, but that's because we're not going to have as much stimulus as we had last year. And you have tough comparisons and all that. I think you're still going to see 3%, 4% GDP growth this year. And I still think you're going to see about 10% earnings growth in that scenario. And, and equities are going to be just fine in that, in that scenario. Now, the flat yield curve, that's a different story. I think you're definitely, you have concerns about us slowing the flat, the yield curve is telling you, do we slow back to trend or even below trend? And also the Russia concerns. So mm. I think there's a lot going on in the bond market right now. And it's hard to really take a lead from them, but it's certainly something but, to, to watch. But Nancy Tangler, one risk here. Um, we saw this is a 1970 story. You had big oil price shocks and the Federal Reserve doesn't tighten policy. Now, tighten policy, what I'm thinking about here is the monetary base and the money supply. If they accommodate $115 oil, then the inflation is going to go higher and higher. I mean, if you want to deal with oil prices, you should deal it from the supply side. We should produce more oil and gas, and we should deregulate. But if the Federal Reserve plays around and says, well, oil prices are high and that's bad, and we better leave it alone, then in effect, they are going to accommodate, I don't know, a 10% inflation rate. Right. 
Yeah, I mean, I never thought I'd say this, Larry, but I really miss Paul Volcker. I mean, those were <laughs> wicked times to be in, be I investing. Know. But, know. you know, in, he, he, during his tenure, stocks were up over 360%. So mm-hmm. um, once once we got inflation under control um, and he start, you know, the crime rate started to come down, things looked robust. I think one of the differences now is that we, we were in a high unemployment period back then and we're in, at almost full employment now. And so it remains to be seen. I mean, I, I think all this hand-wringing over 25 or 50 basis points is, is ludicrous because, right. as you and Stephanie have both said, you know, this, this doesn't even get us close. If, if, if we believe that monetary policy has to get above inflation, it's going to take years uh, to get this right-sized. And the Fed continues to count on the fact that uh, they believe inflation is – they're not using transitory anymore, but they think, you know, that inflation is going to begin to come down – and you only have to look as far as the Atlanta Fed's sticky CPI at 4.2% in January. Mm-hmm. The flexible was up 178 and flexible is 30%. So, yeah, you could see some of that come down uh, as, we, as we move through. The supply chain was easing pre-Ukraine uh, and Russia. I, I don't know that yeah, but, that's the case more. But go back, you know? go back to basics. Let's, let's go back to Laffer. We only have a little bit left. Go back to Laffer-Mundell model. If you want to curb inflation, then you have to strengthen the value of the dollar and you have to cut back on monetary growth. If you want to spur growth, then you have to cut taxes and regulations. These guys are doing it exactly wrong. That's my concern. They're doing it exactly wrong. Anyway, ladies, thank you. Stephanie Link, Nancy Tengler, we appreciate it very much. Folks, Money in Politics right after this. Steve Moore. Uh, is going to join us with Liz Peake. I'm Larry Kudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. You can live stream us. LarryKudlowShow.com All around the world. Dial us up during the week. Fox Business. Name of the show is Kudlow. 4 to 5 p.m. every day. We're going to talk some money and politics with Liz Peake, Fox News contributor, Hill, columnist, and Steve Moore, Freedom Works, Committee to Unleash Prosperity, Committee to Unleash Prosperity Hotline. And his book is Godzilla, How the Relentless Growth of Government is Devouring Our Economy and Our Freedom. Welcome to both of you. So, kids, I had a great session today with Dan Clifton, whom you know from Strategus. Jason Trenner's shop, and um, he was very spot on talking about, quote unquote, the upcoming energy election. I love that. Energy election. This election is going to be about energy or the lack thereof and the high prices at the pump and elsewhere. And the Democrats are the ideological party and the rest of the country, probably outside the White House, but the Democrats are the ideological party, the climate change, the anti-fossil fuel party, the no new leases, no new lease sales onshore or offshore. Uh, We'd rather have Iranian oil than Canadian oil. Huh? Really? Uh, and, of course, what are we going to do about the Russian oil coming in here, financing 
his military machine. The energy election. I go to you, Liz Peek. I think that the Clifton is right on target. And I think most Americans, Liz, are pretty pragmatic. They're pretty common sense. And they know an ideological zealot extremism when they see one and they're going to reject it. Yeah, I, I actually think that's exactly right. Uh, polling shows about 80% of the country thinks that importing oil from Russia right now is brainless. Right. Uh, and it certainly is. It's not a huge amount of our imports, but we should not be. It's enough that we're spending, uh, sending Vladimir Putin $80, 90000000 million a day to fund his war machine. I mean, how heinous is that? How stupid? Even Nancy Pelosi came out and said mm -hmm. we shouldn't be doing that. So I'm proud of her. I think, I'm really proud of her. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> but how, how can you argue otherwise? I mean, it's so I'm completely, sorry. I don't mean to interrupt. No, I mean, it's so completely crazy. So I think there are two issues. One is people uh, who don't follow this quite so closely are just going to be very unhappy that gasoline at the pump is as high as it is. I mean, my guess is it's not going to come down anytime soon, no matter what they do with Iran. Iran's oil exports probably by year end will be up to maybe half a million barrels a day, maybe a million barrels a day. But it's only going to offset some of what Russia has lost because Russia exports are going down. Uh, so I think I think high gasoline prices are here to stay. That's going to be a big problem in terms of inflation and, and uh, voter sentiment. But also, I just think this obsession with climate to have John Kerry react to the war in Ukraine as innocent civilians are being pounded to death by Russian bombs, being concerned about the emissions that mm. the military offensive are creating. I don't know about you, but that was like one of the moments where I just wanted to hit the wall. I mean, mm. I, I just could not believe anyone would be so brain dead. And by the way, we now have a big country. Americans don't realize how incredibly determined Germany has been yes. uh, in their green energy deal, which, by the way, pre was exactly the template for our Green New Deal. This is a thunderbolt to have this country do a U-turn on climate policies, and they've done that. Yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing thing. I agree. I'm just, uh, I just pulled up AAA national average gas prices for regular is $3.92. Three dollars and ninety-two cents, and I'm looking at this. You got, of course, the crazies. Let's see, the West Coast is it um, actually is moving up towards five dollars, and parts of New York, four to five dollars in the Northeast, four to five dollars, three ninety-two. So, Steve Moore, all of the climate warming uh, zealots, the ideologues, the crazies. Um, they're all stuck in the Democratic Party, and it's all in the White House, too. The White House is the only place in America that doesn't want to cut off Russian uh, oil imports. True. It's the only place in America right now. Um, but, Steve well, Moore, this is big stuff. And I, the Democrats are not going to crawl out of this. I mean, we talk yeah, about look, taxes and regulations and overspending and so forth. But this one, energy, okay, gasoline, etc. This is big. Uh, right, uh, and, and I've been saying probably since the last for the last the last five, six, seven, eight years. Uh, I wrote a book with uh, Kathleen uh, uh, Townsend about how the um, the uh, called fueling freedom about the the mm -hmm. revolution, which really changed everything overnight. You know, America went from being an, a, a 
uh, an oil and gas um, importer of, of huge magnitudes to having the most oil and gas in the world. By the way, Elon, even Elon Musk is now yeah. in favor of oil. Yeah. With <laughs> Nancy mean, Pelosi. I'm proud of With Elon Nancy Musk. Pelosi. I'm proud of both of them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, he said, and he said it very well. He said, "Look, I, I think the future is, is you know, batteries." And uh, but he said, "We're not, we're not there yet. We're going to need oil and gas for the next, you know, five or ten years." And so, uh, good for him. Uh, and I'm going to make one other quick point. I, I just think that the climate change issue has become an albatross around the neck of the Democratic Party. Yeah. I do not understand why none of these people will break from this crazy idea, this lunatic idea, that somehow. The same people who can't control the border, they can't control crime, they can't balance the budget, they can't fix our roads and bridges. They're going to change the temperature of the planet? I mean, does anybody really believe this nonsense? I mean, really. So, um, and, you know, but they are going to, and they're also going to, you know, stop the rise of the oceans. Uh, nobody really believes that except for these zealots, and, and they're going to pay a high price for this. Uh, the other thing I would say is we have, I just looked at the numbers, Larry. We have 500 years worth of coal. We have about 300 years worth of natural gas. We have 150 years of oil with existing technology, and the technology gets better all the time. Uh, we're not running out of this stuff. There's no reason we shouldn't be using it. The United States has cut our – we are the cleanest country in the world in terms of our environmental standards. The idea that we would not produce the oil and gas here and import it from places like Russia, which have no environmental standards whatsoever, makes the environment worse. By the way, the ice is building in Greenland. <laughs> they had been well, the ice had been melting Biden is making a difference he's only been president for a year <laughs> they, no it's, it's a cooling it's a freezing trend they had been no. melting the ice is building in <laughs> greenland but liz i mean politically politically uh this is probably going to be issue number one because it's not going to change you know the the sanctions on russia i reckon the congress is going to sanction russian oil imports. I reckon they will. Biden says he's going to veto it. That'll make his position even worse. But you're not going to have, I mean, the Ukraine war is going to go on and on and on. Russia's probably going to, they're going to win, but I don't know what winning means because the, you know, the, the, the freedom fighters in Ukraine are going to continue. And so the sanctions are going to continue and oil prices are going to either stay high or go even higher. And people are going to vote against that. They're just going to vote against all of that because the simple solution is for us to produce more. And we know we can. We yeah, know I, we I, can. I think that that's kind of the amazing thing is this is not something that's out of reach or even exorbitantly expensive. Mm -hmm. Joe Biden, to, <clears throat> excuse me, tomorrow should convene big and small oil companies in his Oval Office and say the the reins are off. Go at it. Whatever right. you need, we right. will provide it. And by the way, there was a pretty good article in the uh, journal by two people uh, um, from Eskimos from Alaska talking about Alaskan oil. And this has been something that really has been sort of ignored uh, in recent months and, and years even. But taking Alaskan oil, where we have billions of barrels of production mm. available to come through an existing pipeline already built, uh, it, it's just madness. But I agree with you. This is not going anywhere. Uh, and by the way, it, it's uh, energy prices, oil prices seeps into everything. It seeps into plastics and it right. seeps into fertilizers. And we are seeing not only um, oil prices go up because of the Ukraine invasion, but, you know, wheat. I was watching commodities two days ago. Wheat went up 7% in one day. I mean, mm. this is 
This is alarming, and I think it's not going to go anywhere. In terms of the outcome of this invasion, it's a little bit like the dog chasing the car. Once he catches it, then what? I mean, if in fact uh, Russian forces take many uh, Ukrainian cities, declare victory, then what? They have to occupy that country. Their economy is in shambles. One thing, Larry, I'm interested in you and Steve addressing is the propaganda war. We've heard uh, journalists are leaving Russia in droves because of the new law, which makes it a a punishable offense by prison, if you call it a war, all kinds of draconian measures in that new law. The question is, are we blanketing, are we fighting the propaganda war in Russia? Because I think that's extremely important right now. The only no one's I don't think anyone's going to get rid of Putin via assassination, but in terms of a popular revolt, we need to be flooding Russia with the reality of what's going on in Ukraine because people there do not know about it. Well, Elon, oh, by the I'm way, looking... there's a new poll, Larry, that just came out um, Friday, yesterday, that uh, which was really pretty eye-opening. It found 62% of Americans do not believe that uh, Putin would have uh, invaded Ukraine if Donald Trump were president. Mm. And to a point you make every day um, on your TV show and on this radio show, which is quoting Reagan, that weakness is provocative. And, Mm. you know, everybody knows that this happened because Biden is weak and we have a weak president and we're paying a high price for the catastrophe of Afghanistan. But the reason that you're not, I mean, obviously, Liz, you're absolutely correct. That's what Trump, I mean, Biden should do. He should, he should go say, we're all in, produce American oil and gas. But can you imagine him calling in the oil and gas uh, company executives, the same people who he said he wants to bankrupt just two months ago? (laughs) Open the spigots, open the spigots, full throttle ahead, and he won't do it. He won't do it. Larry, the but, other thing was we need to we need to start calling it the Russia blood oil because ooh, that's what it is. Ooh. Uh, Liz, I'm looking at uh, Elon Musk. Important <laughs> warning. Starlink is the only non-Russian communication system yeah. still working in some parts of Ukraine. Um, they can't stop it. They can't stop Starlink. No, but they can target it. And that's what that's what his warning was. Uh, If you are using a Starlink uh, um, access to the Internet and and to communicate, they can find you. And I think he was very right to issue that warning because God knows he doesn't want to be. He's I mean, frankly, what is our government doing to improve communications and the news getting out of Ukraine or, again, the propaganda war in Russia? I don't hear anything about that. Thank heavens. Elon Musk has done this because at least then they can communicate in terms of where the Russian invaders are, uh, in terms of what kind of safety measures people should be taking. Otherwise, I think Ukraine is really blacked out right now. He says um, some governments had asked SpaceX to block Russian state media on its Starlink Internet satellites, but said we will not do so unless it's gunpoint. You know what the secret uh, the secret strategy on the Biden White House here is to do a nuclear deal with Iran. Yeah. That's their secret strategy. It's a brilliant, absolutely brilliant strategy. That is probably uh, maybe the worst national security blunder <laughs> in history. I mean, and they're going to justify if the, If they do this, uh, they're going to justify it by saying that'll, that'll loosen up Iranian oil, which yeah. is exactly what we don't <laughs> want with Iran. Yeah. But I mean, that's how crazy this is. So it, 
we'll, we're happier with Russian oil imports and Iranian imports, but we don't want Canadian imports. So we're not going to do well, the XL or anything else. It's worse. it's worse than that. They don't even want oil from Texas. It's better for the world if we get our oil from Tehran than Texas. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really... Um, Let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back. I mean, th this is all macabre. This is gallows humor, mm -hmm. but you can't help it. We got Liz Peak, Fox News, and The Hill. Steve Moore, Freedom Works, and Committee to Unlodge Prosperity. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back after a quick break. Larry Kudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. We're talking money and politics with Liz Peek and Steve Moore. By the way, um, Zelensky spoke to the senators. If you had started sanctions months ago, Liz, there would not have been war. Woo. Just yeah, laid it right out there. That's and you tough. know what? He's right. He's right. Come yeah. on. He's right. And then, and then Biden had the temerity to say the sanctions were, ne were never meant to deter war. I mean, come on. Yeah. It's just one of the stupid, stupid falsehood things that Biden has done. But here's what that's what Zelensky said. I mean, we all said it. They should have put the sanctions on months and months ago, as soon as the troops showed up on the east side of Ukraine. And they didn't. And then what's happened has happened. But he said that, quote, if you had started sanctions months ago, there would not have been war, he said. Well, and, and Larry, here's what we absolutely know for a fact. Putting them on after the fact had no impact whatsoever. It right. did not deter uh, further invasions. It didn't mean that Putin sort of throttled his war machine and, and go slower. Uh, it, would it have helped to do it beforehand? I think perhaps it would have. We don't know, but we know it sure as heck didn't make any difference after the fact. That's right. That's exactly right. Steve Moore, different subject. Um, Rick Scott versus Mitch McConnell. Rick Scott mm. wants a positive agenda, 10, 11 points. Mitch McConnell doesn't want a positive agenda. There's kind of a warfare. It's very unseemly, but there you have it. Um, what do you make of that? Well, I think they're both right. I mean, obviously, um, this election should be the, as you just said, the energy election. So it should be all about the incredible mistakes that, that Biden has made on every issue, whether it's the border, whether it's crime, whether it's the deficit, whether it's gas prices, whether it's our foreign policy. I mean, it's hard. I'm hard pressed to think even more than one or two things that Biden has done right. So it should. We do want this election to be a referendum on Biden and the Democrats. But I also think, uh, you know, that it makes sense for Republicans to have a positive agenda as well. So let's do both. Um, let's talk about making the. Uh, you know, Trump tax cuts permanent. Let's talk about school choice. I think the moment is so ripe for these kinds of issues. Let's talk about, you know, auditing every federal agency to find where the waste is in our government. Uh, let's talk about health savings accounts and health care transparency. Um, so can we do both? Yeah, we can do both. I just would like to see those guys agree yeah. that we can do both. <laughs> I, I mean, I like Kevin, both, you, know. you know, Kevin McCarthy was on the show uh, the day after the State of the Union the Republicans are preparing a positive agenda. Now, of course, everyone is attacking big government socialism. And of course, Biden tried to, you know, he did BBB in the State of the Union without calling it BBB, but he recommended all of his goofy social spending programs and he has no plan for inflation. But Liz, I think you have to have a positive 
future agenda. So the cavalry's coming, the GOP should take both houses, and then the question is, what will they do? And I think, at least in general terms, they should show the public what they'll do. I I think we do need a positive agenda. I was rather unhappy uh, after Biden made some speech recently, not the State of the Union, but before that, and he kept saying uh, his new mantra about how Republicans stand for nothing. What do they want? Remember, he was like, well, what are they after? And then Mitch McConnell was on Fox News the next day, and he couldn't articulate for things that we're for. I mean, I don't think it's very hard. We're, we're for safe streets and safety, and we're for a secure border, and we're stable prices, uh, and, and parents being involved in their kids' education. I mean, these are simple things, and I think Mitch McConnell is a very canny politician. He must think that the animus towards the Biden White House is so drastic right now, Republicans shouldn't muddy the waters. Just let the public have their say about how unhappy they are with the Biden White House. I think that must be his reckoning. But I think that's shallow. And I think, look, if COVID uh, over the next three or four months kind of disappears from our lives, that'll give Biden a boost. Uh, I don't know what else is going to give Biden a boost, come to think of it. But if he has any other wins, you know, you you just can't really predict these things. And, And my point would be, this is not hard. This is not rocket science. We know what voters are concerned about. Let's have some answers, because right now the Biden administration has none. Yeah, I mean, Steve, you're right. They should have both, but they're not having both. They're, what they're having is a public dispute, and I don't, th- I don't think that's a good thing. There is interesting. They had a series of votes uh, in the last couple of days in the Senate that got completely overshadowed by obviously what's happened in Ukraine, where uh, one of my new favorite senators is Senator Marshall from yeah. uh, Kansas. I yeah. don't know if you had him. on. Show. I just he's had him on last night. This last love night. the guy. Love the guy. And he's he's forced these tough votes uh, on basically saying, like, hey, let's let's lift all these mandates and let's lift all the, you know, the crazy mm-hmm. uh, requirements under under uh, COVID because it's now in a retreat. And it was a really I mean, it was a very strategic vote because virtually every Republican, I think every Republican voted to get rid of the mandates and virtually every Democrat voted to keep them. OK, mm-hmm. well, let's have a, you know, a, a referendum on these things. People are sick of it. They want to be freed up. I'm in I'm in Florida right now, Larry. And, you know, it's just it's a free state. You know, nobody's running around with masks on and, and people are getting on with their business. And it's that's the way it's been for the last year or so. Uh, so, um, yeah, those are the kinds of issues Republicans run a freedom agenda. Freedom. They, gotta, they don't want to be bossed around anymore by government. Well, but they got to get off, Liz. They got to get away from this China compete bill. I oh. had Phil Graham on earlier, sure. Senator Graham. I mean, really, we are going to out China, China. That's the yeah. way we're going to compete with them. I mean, they got to get off that. I agree with you. And it's not necessary that, that one of the versions of the bill, it, I'm not sure. Now they have two different bills and, and Biden appeared to kind of confuse them the other night, which is no surprise. But one of the bills, the America Competes Act, is the one that directs $52 billion towards improving semiconductor manufacturing mm-hmm. uh, here in the United States. What a completely idiotic thing. There are now probably $40 billion committed by Intel and other companies already building plants in the United States. I honestly cannot for, I read most of the bill. I cannot for the life of me imagine why taxpayers should be funding. This is I actually looked this up. The most profitable industry on yes. earth in terms yes. of profit margin stuff. What 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 are they thinking? And to your point, that's what China does. China directs investment and spending. We should not be doing that. So the trade group is saying 
Private investment in semiconductors, $200 billion has been committed. Yeah. As you, as you say, Intel's put up $40 billion or whatever. $200 billion, all right? So we don't need this bill. I mean, it's a crazy idea. And um, what was it? 18 Republicans voted for it or some such thing, Steve Moore? I mean, this is the GOP at its worst. It is. It's corporate welfare and it's government directed investment that doesn't work. I, when I first came to Washington in the early 80s, uh, uh, do you remember there was a big debate, Larry, about national industrial policy? Yes. Oh, sure. With Japan. Japan. With Japan. Yeah, Japan. The MIDI, remember, the uh, whatever that yep. MIDI, yeah, MITI. Uh, and everybody, oh, we've got to do what Japan does. And, of course, Reagan did just the opposite. We, we unleashed <laughs> the technology revolution through the free enterprise system and through lower taxes and less regulation. And we're, we're just pounding the rest of the world. And we, we are clearly the technological leader in the world. Right, and we kids. should be the energy leader in the world. Thanks so much. Liz Peake and Steve Moore. I'm Larry Kudlow. Thanks for listening. We will be back next weekend. <laughs> 